Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your co-host Kyle Tibbetts, joined by my fellow co-host Alex Kahn. For episode number six, we chatted with Kamal Ravikant about fear, forgiveness, and how your internal mentality can shape your external reality. Kamal is an entrepreneur, investor, and best-selling author of three books, Love Yourself, Live Your Truth, and Rebirth. Kamal was born in India, but immigrated to the United States, where he and his brother were raised by a single mom in a rough neighborhood in Jamaica, Queens. He spent countless hours at the library where he developed an early love for books, which became his refuge and inspired him to become a writer. This week, Kamal is relaunching an expanded version of his book, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. He sent Alex and I an advanced copy, and I think the message of the book couldn't be more relevant for the world we live in. After hitting rock bottom when his startup during the dot-com boom completely fell apart, he made a commitment to change his life by reprogramming his mind and making a battle of himself. And that's the focus of his book. We hope you enjoy this episode with Kamal Ravikant. Kamal, thanks for joining us on uh, the Paradox Podcast. Thanks for making time. I guess to start things off, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with you, we'd love to hear a little bit about your backstory, being born in India, coming to the United States, and just an abbreviated version of your journey. I know we're going to get into more of your journey, but just to set the table for who you are and what you're about. Okay, very briefly. Yes, born in India. Uh, we came here when I was a little kid, uh, and my mom, single mom, raised my brother and I. No money, literally no money. And she was working all the time, you know, just to put food on the table and pay rent. My brother and I basically grew up in uh, libraries and just in school. And as soon as I got out of high school, um, went to college for a year at a full scholarship. And instead, after a year, I left and joined the U.S. Army. So I was an infantry soldier in the 10th Mountain Division, the U.S. Army. And then after that, I uh, went to college, you know, got my degree in economics and biology, and then spent a few years doing trauma research and level one ERs, watching a lot of people die in front of me. And uh, working with them, and then, and then ended up moving out to California for the dot-com boom, and started building startups. Just jumped in, started building companies, and next thing I knew, that was my thing. And at the same time, while I was doing that, I was writing. I've always wanted to be a writer. You know, books have really impacted me in a way. They impacted me as a child. They were my refuge as a child, and they matter a lot to me. We have the wisdom of humanity available to us. You know, people. When they write a book, they don't meander. They have a core thing they're sharing, and we have the lessons of life, you know, given to us. And I wanted to be a great writer. And so while I was building companies in the evenings and at night or on weekends, that's what I'd be doing: taking apart the greats and writing and rewriting, collecting rejection letters, and becoming a better, a better writer. Then in 2012, I self-published my first book based on 
experience with this company that I built fell apart and I lost everything with it and I fell apart with it. And uh, what I did to get out of it really changed my life around, which came from making a vow to love myself and then how I went about to do it in a very simple, practical, effective way. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a doer. I come from a world, you know, startup world, military world, whatever, you do stuff, right? And that book became a self-publishing success on its own and um, just put me on the map as a writer. So now I run a I built a venture capital firm. I, so I'm a, I'm a VC. It's my own firm. I selectively, you know, invest in startups, and I sometimes advise companies. And I love helping these companies and entrepreneurs, you know, go big and and succeed in what they're doing. And and I write books. I've written a novel since then. I've written another nonfiction book. And now, um, seven years after the original Love Yourself came out, I've actually expanded it uh, based on all the questions I've got from readers. Made me realize I need to go deeper, share way more than the original one if I truly want this to be impactful. And that's coming out um, soon. And so I think that's kind of like a good rundown. That's a great rundown. So the book is Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It. I had the chance to read it this week. I really appreciate you sending over an advanced copy and really enjoyed it. I mean, a couple of things are, it's a very easy, quick read and the concepts are concrete enough that I feel like they're things that you can implement very easily into your your day-to-day life. And that's something that I, I really look for and appreciate. In your own words, what is loving yourself all about and how did it change your life? Okay, you know, for me, look, it's funny, I've become a writer in the self-help genre and it's a genre I'm not necessarily a fan of, you know, because I find it's a genre full of a lot of platitudes. Literally, they'll be like, you know, love yourself, take care of yourself, be good to yourself, give yourself bubble baths and all this. But it, look, ultimately, I, I believe it's all mindset. It's it's our thoughts and feelings that, you know, is where everything rises from, where we go, who we are and what we create in the world. I tried to figure out in a moment of desperation when I really was at bottom and it was more in a way to save myself. And... I don't know where I came from to love myself. The vow I wrote was to love myself. And I really do believe fundamentally in the power of making commitments to yourself and keeping them. And because I've written a vow to myself in my journal, uh, a vow is the ultimate commitment to oneself. So I had to keep it. So I had to figure out what to do. So for me, honestly, I didn't know what that meant, but I had to figure it out. And I know it didn't mean the usual self-care stuff you hear because I was just in a miserable place in my mind. So what I decided was I'm just going to work on my mind. And so I think ultimately loving yourself comes from being in a place in our mind and our thoughts where those becomes part of our natural makeup, where we make decisions from that place, where we have thoughts from that place, where we live life from that place. And so what is internal actually ends up becoming the external and how we react to and how we act in the world. If you had to compare and contrast maybe your mentality that you advocate for in the book and that you've been putting into practice kind of in your daily life with maybe the mentality you had going back to being in college or joining the military or running a startup in Silicon Valley, can you compare and contrast those two mentalities and maybe how you are a different person now than you were back then? I think, um, hmm, look, it's things happen easier for me because I come at things from a different place. I don't come at it as much from fear. I'm more purpose-driven, more mission-driven for my own thing. I'm willing to take stand for who I am and what I believe in, which is ultimately, you know, originally what this book was about. It was taking a stand and, and sharing with the world the stand I'd taken and how it changed everything for me. And it turns out it works for everybody else. 
Actually, would you mind repeating the, that question again? Because I thought I, I think I drifted there for a second. No, I think you started diving right into it. I can compare my own life, seasons of my life where maybe I was living out of selfishness or fear mm-hmm. or, or some operating system that wasn't very productive for me. Just to kind of relate to a little bit, I in college, I actually temporarily dropped out of school to start a company. It wasn't initially a startup. It was more a, a consulting firm doing internet marketing for companies. And then really tried to actually build a, a software company, went and pitched venture capitalists, did the whole thing. But I was operating from this place of putting the whole weight of the world on my shoulders. I certainly right. wasn't taking care of myself. Right. I certainly, I was 21, so I had no notion of like taking care of my mental health wasn't even in my vocabulary. Meditation wasn't even on the table for me as, as something that I was even considering doing. In fact, even though I lived in Berkeley, ironically, I thought meditation was something that only hippies did. So... I can sort of look at my mentality back then and how unproductive it was and sort of compare to my mentality now, which again, I'm looking forward to continuing to dig more into your book and putting some of that stuff into practice because as I've shifted towards taking care of myself, you know, physically, spiritually, uh, psychologically, life does tend to happen a lot, a lot easier. And it was a lot, a lot harder before. Yeah, I mean, look, um, I think I've achieved more, whatever I've achieved since then, since I've done this has been easier. And I think that's because of that shift in mindset. It's an internal shift that happens, right? And and what I, what I figured out was just how to do it in a very mm-hmm. practical way, in a very simple way. And I've learned that like we get better on the inside, our life gets better on the outside. So a lot yeah. of things that I was pushing for like earlier on to do, like pushing for to be an author to be published, right? Versus just going out and writing something simple and true using that craft that I'd learned and just sharing the world. And that actually made me a well-known author. Yeah. Like the things just start to work because you also tend to be more honest with yourself and the Completely. world about who you are. That actually is one of the bigger shifts as well because otherwise when you're coming from fear, you're less honest about who you are to the world. You know, you're afraid of showing that. And the irony is that the more you show your real self is the more that the world mm-hmm. responds and, and wants to know you. That makes sense, yeah. And, and there's also, like you said, there's this notion that if you do a lot of that internal work first, you're then able to go out and do the things you need to do. If you go out first without any of the internal work, you're kind of operating from a, from a shaky place. You're kind of operating with foundation on the sand versus on the rock. But you can do them both at the same time. For example, we go to the gym to take care of our body. That's what we think we're doing, right? It's a practice. We eat healthy because we want to look a certain way. We want to feel a certain way. It's a practice, right? Same thing with the mind. Like you want to make it better. You want to be better on the inside. That's a practice. All of this comes from making them a consistent practice. If you go to the gym once a year, you know, versus if you go to the gym once a day for 365 days a year, you know, you'll be able to tell the difference. People will be able to tell the difference. You work in your mind consistently in a very specific, focused way every day versus once a year, you know, you'll be able to see the difference in yourself and in your life. That's basically what it comes down to. It's funny, like the thing that we should prioritize the most, which is the inside, is usually the one that we prioritize the last, mm-hmm. you know? And that's the one that actually, when it falls apart, everything else falls apart with it. Totally. Versus if that stays solid, everything, no matter what happens, you stay solid and you can bounce back up, you know? I'll give you an example. Like uh, we were talking earlier before the podcast, like two months ago, you know, I, I was in an operating table having emergency surgery, literally in the moment to save my life as I was leaving the planet, you know, and 
I was talking to my brother about this like a month later, you know, so I was in immense amount of pain afterwards, you know, emergency surgery is not done very gently, you know, and, uh, and I was like, look, man, my mindset has been basically more of gratitude and feeling blessed and just feeling good most of the time. There's been times where it's been hard because, you know, when you're in pain, sometimes you struggle. Um, but most of the time it's been really good. And I was like, man, that's, that's all, I wasn't always like this. That's all testament Mm. to the work I've done in my mind to show that the, like that stuff sticks and it stays and your mind, it just thinks that way. I wasn't that person, you know, it's not like I was someone running around always being that way. I came from a, you know, pretty rough background and these are all things that I've actually taught myself as an adult. And once you, once you do the work, it's like if you're in shape and you get out of shape, it's easier to get back in shape. Your body remembers, right? Same thing when you work in the mind. You created those neural pathways. The mind remembers, and the mind actually starts to kick those in the moment you start to go back there. How long, if you remember, would you say after you had kind of figured out a game plan? I mean, you talk about coming to this realization in the book. Uh, you talk about implementing it pretty much immediately, you know, putting pen to paper and then starting to follow the steps, the meditation, kind of the self-talk for for lack of a better word. Do you remember how long uh, you were doing that before you noticed real kind of tangible changes in your life? Sure. Um, and it's not like I sat down and came up with a plan. I didn't know how to do this. I just, what I did was I just tried things. Mm-hmm. I tried everything, man. I just, anything I could think of, I just tried it. And I, what I, what I did was if it made me feel better, I went further down. And if it didn't make me feel better, I threw it away. It was only like after like two weeks or so, I realized I'd, I was doing certain things consistently that were making me feel better. And they were all very simple. It took very little amount of my time and, and they all involved the internal self. And literally it only took a few weeks for like my mind just to talk to really shift. You know, but I was doing it consistently. That was the key. The more you consistently, you you put certain thought patterns in your mind, the faster they'll actually just start to run on their own. Have you found that, especially in investing in and advising entrepreneurs, that there's a lot more openness on the part of entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley and abroad to start taking this test and try approach to their own mental health? I've seen some of that. I've talked to folks here in the Valley that seem more open to that, but have you noticed just kind of in one-on-one conversations with entrepreneurs that you're working with that there's just much more of an openness to trying some of these things that maybe five, 10 years ago, not only would they have not have been interested in, but they would have been very uncomfortable even talking about publicly, maybe for some of those fear reasons or because they want to project a certain level of, of strength. Have you found that in your one-on-one yeah. discussions? Yeah. Yeah. Often like, you know, I'm just advising people to not jump off cliffs Sometimes it's good to jump off cliffs, but a lot of it's mindset, you know, helping them make the right decisions with the right mindset. Um, But yeah, before I think it used to be more just helping more in in a business way. Now it's both. You're right. There is more of an openness, but I don't think it's even Silicon Valley. I think it's just overall the culture now. You know, it's much more accepted, much more okay to actually you know, just realize like, look, let me work on myself and that'll, that'll actually make me better in whatever I do. And uh, it's something everyone knows, but I think people were just afraid to talk about it. You know, for yeah. the longest time, it was like every article was people were killing it. And no, not every company can be killing it because most companies fail, you know, but right. yet on the outside, you meet the CEO, how are they doing? And it was just like, rah, rah, rah. Um, you know, mostly they're just ducks paddling, you know, frantically underneath, you know, you, but you don't see the, you don't see the legs underneath going crazy, trying not to drown. So... I think just overall in society, which I think is great because we're just being more real. 
that's all it is, is being more real. Um, and when you're being more real with yourself, you know, you're way better. I think the worst thing you can do is bullshit yourself. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's like one of the biggest gifts we can give ourselves is catch ourselves in our own bullshit, call oh, ourselves in our own, own bullshit. We do that, we automatically start to get better. Because we get stuck, stuck in these patterns of blaming this or blaming that. But we really look at it, it's like, okay, who's the, who's the core, who's the fulcrum point here? It's always us, right? So you mm-hmm. start doing that and you start taking more personal responsibility and shifting and you become better. Switching gears a little bit, I know the topic of forgiveness is in the first portion of your book. And to me, it seems like forgiveness is a is like a concept that's fallen out of fashion in today's society. I almost can't even remember the last time I even said I forgive you to someone or someone really apologize in a genuine way. People kind of do it in more surface level ways, but a, a deep forgiveness, either one to one or actually just the the art of forgiving someone, even if they're not even present physically. How do you think that individuals in society can benefit? by maybe re-embracing or reintroducing a concept that, at least from my vantage point, seems like it's kind of disappeared a little bit. Well, let me be clear about one thing. So the book is focused about you being better, mm-hmm. right? It's all about like you being your best self, you know, by loving yourself. So when I talk about forgiveness, I talk about self-forgiveness, yeah. which is ultimately the only control we got. Yeah. You know, like we, you can try to forgive another, but until you're someone who forgives yourself, how are you gonna be someone who forgives another? Right. I believe it all starts with the self. So that's all forgiveness is, is freeing yourself. So I have an exercise that I've done sometimes in my life that on self-forgiveness that really works, that I've shared with readers, um, you know, on a blog post I did. And that really works with them. It just kind of frees you. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's an intentional exercise that maybe takes half an hour. But it's not something you do every day. You do it once in a blue moon. I, I think I've done it this year once or twice. Right. Mm-hmm. But you do it when you really feel like you need it and you do it and then you move on to making the commitment to yourself to love yourself and making your vow. And and then things just start to shift because you start to move forward. So if you want to move forward, you got to leave whatever you can from the past behind. And self-forgiveness is the best way to do it. Just to push on the concept a little bit and maybe even play devil's advocate a little bit. I definitely agree that if you're not able to forgive yourself, your ability to forgive other people is not really going to be there. You're going to struggle. If- if you can't if you can't do yourself, if you can't love yourself truly, how can you truly love another? You can't I totally. mean you can, but babe, wait till try loving yourself and then then try loving another and it's yeah, on a different level. And it, it applies to anything, right? Like if you're not taking care of yourself, it's hard to take care of others as well. So I think that that is that is a principle that holds true across different dimensions, whether it's forgiveness or whether it's health or whether it's whatever. I guess the one thing that I would say, and I'm not the best person at this, but I do feel like when you forgive other people, even if they are not present, that also is something that liberates yourself. Because if you're holding on to something that you don't really have control over, there might be a way to forgive other people, even maybe not face-to-face, that also frees yourself. And so I think forgiving yourself first makes sense. But I'm just thinking out loud and wondering if once you've done that and you feel like you're kind of in a good place, I wonder if, yeah, forgiving other people, even people that you can't meet with face-to-face, also has a pretty liberating uh, of phenomenon of to course. it. Of course, it's stuff you're carrying from the past, right? It changes the past. One of the most liberating things I ever did, and I shared this in actually my novel, Rebirth, which is based on an experience I had in my life, was forgiving my father after he had passed away, you know? Wow. and. And so uh, talk about not being able to see someone. Um, and I had to do it and it really freed me. But also at the same time, I had to forgive myself for being the son that who wasn't there for him at certain times, mm. you know. So it's always a two-way street, yeah. you know. Uh, if you're forgiving other, forgive yourself 
of whatever you're holding against yourself. Forgive yourself there. That's very, very important because in the end, you got to be free. You got to be free before you can set others free. You can set others free, but you got to set yourself free first. Uh, Otherwise, you'll keep on coming back. Yeah. Put your oxygen mask on before helping others. Yeah. It's a cliche, but I I have a chapter about it, but it it just kind of, I think it's just a natural phenomenon. Yeah. I think you've definitely touched on this question, but I just want to ask it in a little more of a direct way. One of the things I struggle with and reading your book kind of um, made me revisit this all over again is kind of striking that balance between wanting to be a high achiever, be very successful in my career, be very successful in my my marriage and my relationships with my friends and family, all those things that we all want, getting to the gym, waking up early, on and on and on. How do you balance all of that with the idea of loving yourself and forgiving yourself. And what I mean is, I think where I hit sticking points is, I can be too hard on myself and I'm not doing everything perfect and I beat myself up over it. Obviously that's not healthy. But then I can also get to a place where I say, well, I just need to chill out. I need to let life you know, come as it may, don't worry about things. And then maybe I think I'm not necessarily holding myself to the standards that I should. So is there a way you kind of look at you know, loving yourself, forgiving yourself, but also saying, well, I still want to be driven and I still want to be successful and I still want to be kind of a go-getter. I think those are not mutually exclusive at all. You love yourself, you'll push yourselves in things that matter. You love Mm -hmm. yourself, you won't push yourselves in the things that don't matter. Mm -hmm. You love yourself, you will eat healthier. You love yourself, you will go to the gym. You know, like you will do these things that matter. You love yourself, you will make your relationship with with your wife better. You know, because that is what you would want for someone you love. You know, so like that becomes a fundamental construct that you view life through. It's actually very mutually inclusive. You know, it becomes it becomes part of your foundation of who you are and how you look at the world. It's not something you have to sit around and ask yourself, well, am I loving myself in this moment or not? You know, like that's not what I do. It's it's what I do is, you know, the practice outline in the book is more like layered inside me so that my life and my expression starts to come from that place. And you know what happens? You start saying no to things that don't really matter. Mm-hmm. One thing I've learned is like when you when you don't love yourself you say yes to a lot of things that don't matter and waste your time and pull you away from your focus and pull you away from what your mission is you want to be great in life you learn to say no Mm -hmm. and actually when you're loving yourself you get really good at saying no so i think honestly it's not a prerequisite for success but if you want fulfillment with the success it is and you know i think success without fulfillment is not a lot of fun yeah it's a pretty empty place to be one topic i've heard you talk about is this idea of fear and how fear is something that drives people. I I sort of feel like we're kind of in this age of anxiety and fear uh, just in general right now. People are very sort of frenetic and kind of running around. And I think a lot of what you're offering in your book is potentially an antidote to that mentality, that fear-based mentality. But you mentioned something very interesting that could be very much a potential paradox, which is that um, anytime we're sensing fear around something, something we don't want to do, something that we're, maybe we're putting off, maybe we're procrastinating, instead of it being a sign that we should run from it, it actually should be a sign that we need to push toward it. Can you unpack that a little bit and just talk about how, yes, sometimes fear is your body telling you and your instincts telling you, I need to get out of this horrible situation, and it is, there's a safety component to it, or there's that clear benefit to listening to that voice. But how do you distinguish between the times where maybe fear is telling you that you should push into it and not push away? Usually, I think the distinction is when you're doing something that really is important to you, matters to you, 
you will feel fear. You know, Stephen Pressfield wrote a book called The War of Art where he talks about that, calls it resistance. Every artist faces that. And he says most artists struggle with it, which is why they never hit publish or they never put out their piece of work or they never do the podcast they never put out that piece of music because they're afraid, right? In those places, when it's a true expression of yourself, uh, of your art or your thing you got to do in the world, or that company you want to build or that piece of design you want to do and put out or like that career you want to take, Fear's going to come up and actually you got to look at, okay, fear's coming up. That means that this is real, that this is, this is something I should do. I should follow. Cause you know, more often than not, you know, you end up going places you never would have if you stepped through it and it, you may fall flat on your face a couple of times along the way, but then the thing is getting up and going past the fear of that happening again and getting better and better in this modern day lexicon of entrepreneurship it just seems like everyone's got instant success you know instant mm-hmm. success is a fallacy mm-hmm. um i you know silicon valley have seen enough success stories there are some rare ones and let's be honest those are rare yeah okay so even with the with the successes you know instant successes they don't see behind the scenes i've seen behind the scenes like there's a lot involved um you gotta actually just step up step up step up step up and you know these people have had to face their fears so if you're doing your thing, whatever your thing is, and fear's coming up, that's a good sign. Yeah. That's a sign that you're on the path. Push forward. Yeah. There's not really growth without encountering fear. If you live your life avoiding fear and pain, you're essentially avoiding the growth that comes on the other side of it as well. And so, yeah, that, that makes sense that it goes hand in hand with pushing towards whatever your goals are and, and, and growing as a person. Shifting a little bit towards Silicon Valley or just tech in general, the tech ecosystem in, in New York and San Francisco and, and across the mm-hmm. country, what's an aspect of Silicon Valley culture, and I don't mean the place, I mean the mentality, that you think is potentially overrated? And what do you think is, is one aspect of that culture that's underrated? I think one key thing that makes Silicon Valley what it is, is that there's a paid forward mentality. And that's underrated. People talk about it, but it is highly underrated because the paid for mentality is what keeps the whole operation going, right? When you get there, it's easier to find people who will help you or who will work with you or will mentor you without actually calling them mentors. People, you know, people get involved with what you're doing as long as they can sense something in you that, look, you're sharp, you want to do things, you're a doer. Um, that's highly underrated, but I think that is what makes Silicon Valley what it is. It, you know, you don't get punished there for failure. Mm-hmm. As long as you worked hard at it and you learned, you'll get funded again. You'll get backed again. That's another main thing that's underrated where a lot of places you're punished for failure. Yeah. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's hard to culturally replicate Silicon Valley, and especially abroad, because a lot of countries, no matter how much funding they give you, you know, that whole stigma of failure um, you know, if you're not willing to make decisions that make you fail, you'd never grow a great company. Mm-hmm. You'll never make something big, yeah. right? You got to take some serious, crazy risks to go big. But if you're afraid of that, if you're afraid of failure, you're never going to go there, yeah. right? And and also the paid forward mentality, you know, where people are actually helping you out. You're, the people who've been there or the, who are backing you have been in your shoes multiple mm. times. So they can give you advice that is practical and real, not theoretical, not some mm-hmm. lawyer telling you what you can't do, but an entrepreneur telling you, yeah, you can't do this, but this is how I got around it, right? And that's the advice you want, right? I Completely. see that a lot of first-time entrepreneurs that spend their time listening to lawyers, and mm-hmm. the lawyer's job is to mitigate risk. But you cannot be listening to that when you're, you're an entrepreneur. Your job is to take risk. Right. You know, that's the as a function of the word, you have to take risk. If you're not, you're not an entrepreneur. So to be surrounded by people who actually face risk mm. and live to tell the tale, 
that's what you want. So that's highly underrated, and but I think it's what makes Silicon Valley really special. What's overrated? Um, I think maybe it used to be the case that you know access to capital was in Silicon Valley, but that's overrated now because access to capital is everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, take a look at crypto, you know, blockchain. There is capital from everywhere, you know, from all over the world from individuals, and this is happening more and more with AngelList and so forth, where you can, you know, you can raise capital for a company from from investors anywhere. So that's becoming more and more overrated. It still helps to be there, but you can raise money in New York, you can raise money in Austin, you can raise money in different countries. You know, you got, you know, you create a product that's doing well and taking off people and put on one of these platforms like AngelList. People will find you to back you. Yeah. So that's where the game is changing and makes it really interesting. Yeah, it's almost like maybe the mentality and the culture around, like you said, pay it forward, that's underrated. But the physical location, tying that to a space, a six by six mile very, very expensive city like San Francisco, that might be overrated in a, in a decentralized world. It's starting world to become that way. That we're it's moving to towards. That way. Yeah. The, the more wired and connected we are, the more it's less important. Yeah. I, I, think, I think I mostly agree with that. I think to tie it back to the conversation around fear, like you said, there's enough real fear that building a company, for example, as an entrepreneur, you are going to face a lot of fear. And if you're operating in a culture where there's punishment attached to failure, punishment attached to not returning money to investors, that ratchets up the fear even more. And so your ability to actually focus on the fear that is worth diving into and really confronting and really challenging because you have all this other fear that really is more in the ecosystem or in the culture that's actually not beneficial. It doesn't produce a good result for anybody. I think that is what's special about Silicon Valley is the fear focus is in the right direction versus like a non-productive or an unconstructive direction potentially. That makes sense. Let's go, go into ahead, a few of the questions that we ask uh, guests on every episode. Sure. What, what's something you believe that most people don't? One thing I believe, um, I was talking to someone earlier about this. I think I have this belief, and it's it's a belief that anyone can have. You know, beliefs are just statements that we just start telling ourselves to, until they become true. That's all it is. You know, one doesn't have to be born with a silver spoon to have that or whatever, and I sure wasn't. Um, one belief I have is that every problem is solvable and it's really helped me in my life. Like no matter what I get thrown at or whatever I decide to do, I'll figure it out because it's solvable. You just have to keep at it and keep trying different things and you will solve it. As you can see, that definitely helps in building startups. Like, look, I didn't start off being a good writer. I I, I studied and taught myself, you know, obsessively. And I had the masters teach me because their lessons are in their books. You just have their works to study from and see exactly what it takes. And so you just start studying them and and at first you emulate and then you end up coming with your own style. Then you have your own stories to tell. All these things, every single problem I think is solvable. That's something I really do believe. And I think that serves me really well in life. Interesting. Yeah. A lot of folks that come from maybe a rougher background, you mentioned that you come from a a tougher childhood raised by a single mom who worked super hard. You and your brother were in the library teaching yourselves, exposing yourselves. Look, man, I used to get jumped. I used to get all the whole work, you know, this was in the the Bronx or this was in Jamaica. It was in Jamaica. Jamaica is where the rap came from man. that part where, you know, rap didn't come from a pretty place. So how, do you, place of, how did this belief that any problem is solvable flow out of that? Because a lot of people, I think, feel it didn't come from childhood, disempowered. Yeah, that's, they, that's what I'm trying to say. Mm. It doesn't have to come from childhood. We don't have to be given this. Somewhere along the way, as an adult, I decided this, and I just started living it. Yeah, it was almost like a choice. And, 
Yeah, it really is. Beliefs are choices. You know, we're not we're not uh, tied to our past beliefs. You know, it's good to understand what they are because our beliefs do actually end up determining our destiny. They determine our choices. They de- determine our actions. So I think it behooves one to actually pick beliefs that we think will serve us in the life that we want and actually just literally start making it a statement that we repeat to ourselves until it becomes fact. Look, the mind is an unruly thing, but it's ours. It's all we got. And the more we train it, the better it is. I mean, it's meant to be trained. We just have never been taught to be trained. Mm -hmm. You know, why shouldn't we train our own mind to to actually serve what we want rather than us just being beholden to like these these beliefs and patterns that we've sort of like fallen into because of circumstances of our life. Yeah. If that's the case, then those circumstances of our life will dictate the rest of our life versus I choose to dictate what the rest of my life will be. And this mm-hmm. is what I'm going to believe. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that all problems are solvable. So this, this next question is kind of a good segue from that. What's a problem that you are concerned about that most people are not concerned about at all? Hmm. What am I concerned about? I think I, I, I do spend a lot of time focusing on mindset, on how do I make my internal self better. What's interesting, because I set out to be a literary fiction writer. That's the kind of writer I wanted to be. But I realized over time, ultimately, what am I doing as a writer? I'm sharing the truths that I've learned. And truths, not just like, hey, look at my truth. I'm in this mountain. Look at me on top of a mountain. It's like, here's the path I took. And here's exactly how you can do it. So I think I focus a lot more on on the internal self than mm-hmm. most people do. Um, I could be wrong, but I think that's no. That I think to be the case. I think that's right. I think there is a shift towards people focusing more internally, but I think in general, we've been in a cycle where people are externalizing a lot of their problems. Like my problem is because so and so over there did something, versus thinking what am I actually doing to contribute to my life and how it's playing out. So I think the majority yeah. of people, uh, including I, I've done this a lot myself, you tend to externalize problems, and it's much more of a concerted effort and a very mindful shift to say, you know what, I'm gonna move inward and I'm gonna focus on getting my own internal house in order before I start pointing fingers um, at other people, other institutions that are, are causing problems for me. Yeah, I just do my best not to point fingers at anyone. Yeah. You know, The only one I point a finger at is myself because yeah. I'm the only one I can really change is myself. So this is a, an open-ended question, take it in any direction that you want, but what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received? One of the best pieces of advice I ever received, and I actually, which is fundamentally what Love Yourself and, and the book is based on, is that life is from the inside out. Who you're being, the person you're being, the man I'm being, that expresses itself to the outside. So work on the man inside, and then the outside will start to work. You know, make the man inside better. You know, work on that more than anything else. And it's something I fundamentally believe. I've learned it enough, and I believe it. And that's literally that piece of advice I took when I was at bottom and I decided to, I made this vow to love myself and set out how to do it. And it wasn't that just my internal self got better, my life got significantly better, which really surprised me. Now we can go into like all sorts of nature of reality stuff, which I like playing around with intellectually, but all I know is that my life got better in ways that I didn't plan for. And I think that's just kind of like how life works. The, your inside affects your outside. Don't ask me how the whole thing works. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, People have been trying to figure that out. That's the, the history of humanity, trying to figure out the nature of reality. But it just is. Maybe just do it selfishly. Make yourself better on the inside because selfishly, your life will be better on the outside as a result. 
Completely. With the nature of reality stuff, and, and this is not something that I had planned to talk about, but uh-huh. um, it's fu- it's fun to go there because it's really, really tough. And no one has the answer by definition and no one can prove anything definitively. But what are some of the concepts maybe that you picked up in, in the books that you've read or that you've thought about individually that you find interesting or maybe you think have some credibility in terms of the nature of our reality? Well, Three months ago, I was in Nepal um, in Mustang Valley, which is uh, where right where Buddhism flowed from India to Tibet through Mustang Valley. It's an actual valley in the Himalayas, studying with these Buddhist monks called the, the Bon. They're the mystics of Tibetan Buddhism. They were around in Tibet before Buddhism came around, and they, they still practice their mysticism. And I found those guys interesting. Uh, you know, every religion's got the mystics. Every culture has a mystic. So they're the ones out there who are really trying to figure out. They don't want a dogma. They don't want a system. They just want to figure out the nature of reality and, and just really in a practical way, right? And so in my readings or in my experience with meeting people like that, and what I'm finding is they all have the same one thing in common. They all say that this whole thing is an illusion. Mm-hmm. That, you know, like this whole thing that's just the mind hallucinating reality, where reality is way more than this. And there's a, we're all connected. And uh, there's, a, there's a very interesting concept I was reading about called Indra's Net, which is this ancient Vedic concept where in, in the beginning of time, there's a net like a spider web that goes in all directions, right? Infinitely in all directions and all dimensions. So it's infinite, right? Inf- and every node is a glittering jewel. And every piece of consciousness, which would be you, both of you, myself being a separate piece of consciousness, is one of those jewels, right? And when you look at that jewel, what it's doing is it's actually reflecting all the other jewels. Mm. So there's a connection and there's actual literal, literal connection as well as a refraction of everything that exists. I mean, the fact that they came up with this, I don't know how many thousands of years ago, is fascinating. But you know, yeah. now you're finding you're finding theories about the holographic universe, and and so, you know, then then you have you know very smart people saying like, hey, this whole thing might just be a simulation, and so forth. Right. You start to look into that, and you think, you know what? There's something bigger than me going on. Yeah. Something bigger than this animal self, whatever that is. You know, I don't think that the software that we run around in hardware is designed to actually figure the whole thing out. Right. But it's been trying to figure this out forever, and there is something there. So. The way I look at it is, how do I make it practical? How do I make this kind of knowledge practical? The one thing that helps us, it actually brings me back to more and more, okay, if this is the case, then the software that I'm running, the inside, affects <laughs> affects the whole thing. That's mm-hmm. the theory I have. And so, like, work on the inside, the outside gets better. It's something that I've noticed practically in my life. So, the most interesting part about all this readings and the studying that I've done in the last couple of years on this, actually, no, not the last couple of years, just this year, I got interested in it, is that... There's more to this. The whole thing is an illusion, and yeah. we're in the illusion, so it's very <laughs> hard to break free of the illusion. Sure. Uh, but but the fact that we're in an illusion is very interesting. That we're it's all illusion. We're in it, and there's some there's more to this than meets the eye, so to speak. Yeah. It's fascinating. It, it is fascinating, and it's fascinating too because, as you mentioned, even all the major world religions have different versions of this. I mean, you could hear Elon Musk talking about how we're living in a simulation. Oh. And that's actually not even a huge departure. Even take the Judeo-Christian worldview, right? The idea that Earth was created is essentially like saying there's a simulation, that there's the physical world that we live in, but there's a spiritual dimension maybe that we can't even fully experience. So it's fascinating that actually there's a compelling case to be made that all the major world religions and people outside of religion too might even agree that this is all an illusion and that 
you mentioned the interconnected nature of the world and the nodes. And, and one thing that's interesting too about the work that you're doing is you're working on yourself, but you're sharing these stories and these truths with other people. And that's a way of influencing the hundreds of thousands of people that have read your book for sure. But the people that those people interact with too, you're influencing the simulation or the, the reality that mm. we're living in that way, which is sort of a cool way of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, it is. Well, we've super enjoyed having you on the podcast. We want to be respectful of your time. If folks want to buy the book and uh, follow you, what are the best ways to do that? Well, the book's called Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends on It, and it'll be out January 7th, uh, 2020. It's a beautiful, life-changing book that you can get at your finest bookstore or finest online bookstore, Amazon, obviously. Uh, Find me on Twitter, Instagram, just my full name, um, and that's pretty easy. And I'm pretty approachable or just, you know, my email address is always in my books. If you read a book of mine, you want to email me with something from there, feel free to. Awesome. Well, I'm excited to. It was a lot to... of fun, and uh, really interesting discussion. And we thank you for your time. Oh, no, it was a pleasure. Thank you guys for making it. Yeah, thank you so much, Kamal. We appreciate it. My pleasure. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. In episode number four, we chatted with Trey Stevens, partner at Founders Fund and co-founder of Anderil Industries, about this idea that diversification is a modern disease that stems from lack of conviction. Looking back at my childhood even, you know, we grew up and people are talking about well-roundedness and getting liberal arts degrees and diversifying assets. And really, the older I've gotten, the more it has become obvious to me that diversification in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases, is just lack of conviction. It's like basically saying, uh, I don't have strong feelings about anything, and so I'm going to have very mild feelings about everything uh, as an alternative. And if you, if you like had the ability to invest money in a company that you had incredibly high conviction that it was going to be worth $100 billion, would it make sense to put even $5 of your money in like an index fund? No, that would be insane. You should put every single dollar you can afford into the company that has the $100 billion upside. And yet that's not what an asset manager today would tell you. In episode number three, we talk with James Bashera, entrepreneur, angel investor, and podcaster about the real struggles of building a company. I mean, there was, there was a moment where I was just breaking down in tears in the bathroom of my wife's uh, parents' house and, and just breaking down in tears, couldn't stand up and, and just was definitely thinking, what? the hell is happening this is how will i get through this but the whole time i I was never thinking i wish i wasn't in this you can choose to to think about these things as as not that you chose them to happen but you could always sit there and imagine what if i chose this Hmm. what what would be the blessing within this to where i would choose this and many of us choose to go to the gym and put your muscles through intense stress voluntarily uh, you know on purpose so why not put your spirit through through stress so that uh, you could build up uh, some muscle there as well
A quick housekeeping note, we just launched a new website for the podcast at paradoxpodcast.co, which will have all episodes and everything you need to know about the podcast. If you enter your email address and subscribe, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your inbox one to two days early. And you can always drop us a line on the contact form. We read every single message and really value constructive feedback. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts and at Mr. Alex Kahn. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.